As much as I love this country, as much as I am proud to be an American, I am not a citizen of this country. I'm a citizen of heaven. As much as I enjoy my freedom as anyone else in this room, we're free in Christ. Always will be, no matter what restrictions are placed upon us. Amen? Amen. All right. We rolling live? Through all of this? All right. Well, sorry, folks, for all the ins and outs, but I'm glad you saw that video. We're probably shut down right now because of it, but all right. If you have your Bibles, open them to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And good morning. Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Good morning, Facebook Live and YouTube and live stream and whatever, wherever else we wind up. Revelation chapter 1, uh, chapter 4 rather, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Lord, what an amazing verse of Scripture this is. There's so much hope, so much promise in that verse of Scripture, Lord. But as we comfort each other in these days with that verse, as we comfort each other in these days with the thought of the rapture, Lord, may that not be our only focus. It wasn't your only focus, Lord. It's something for us to look forward to, but our true focus, our purpose for being here is to bring glory and honor to you and to spread the message of the gospel. May we never lose sight of that. So go before us here this morning. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So before we start this morning, I need to clear up a couple of things first. There was a couple of Bereans in the church. You know what a Berean is? Paul had gotten done teaching, and he was teaching the Bereans, and the Bereans went home and searched everything that Paul had taught them. And Paul commended them for it. He said, you know, everybody should be a Berean. Don't just take my word for it. Don't ever take my word for it. Always, if I say something you're not sure of or something you doubt, go home, look it up, study, be a Berean. So we have a couple Bereans in the church, and they noticed that I made a mistake in my biblical math last week. So in comparing the differences between the rapture and the second coming, I mentioned that there's a difference in timing. No one knows the day or the hour that the rapture will occur. However, we can kind of pinpoint the day and the hour when Jesus will return again for, his, for the judgment of the world because that happens as the Antichrist defiles the temple. So you can project out and figure that out. Fortunately for us, we won't be here, but for those of you who are, that's how you're going to determine when Jesus is coming back. That's called the second half of the tribulation. The tribulation is how many years? Seven. Half of seven is what? Not the two and a half I said last week. So, erase two and a half years from your memory banks. I'll wait. Wish I had that little thing they have in men in black. You know, they just... All right? And replace it with three and a half years, and then you will be caught up. Pun intended. So, thank you again to those who caught that. Thank you for being a Berean. Secondly, I just want to let you know it is not my intention to purposely scare you or depress you. However, it is my responsibility to prepare you. And that's what I hope these messages do. They prepare you. 
Um, there is evidence that we are the final generation. We've gone over this, but I'm going to give you one more. How many churches does Jesus write a letter to? The last church was what? Laodicea. Is that the age we live in now? We are the church of Laodicea. There's no eighth church, is there? There's no number eight. It ends with us. It ends with the church of Laodicea. So we truly are the final generation. The church, the word church, ecclesia, the called out ones, is mentioned 19 times between Revelation chapter 1 and 3. 19 times. It's not mentioned again until Revelation chapter 22. Why? Where is it? Well, it's right here in verse 1 of chapter 4 when Jesus says, come up here. Come up here. He's saying that to us, to John, to the church. Come up here. The church is not present during the chapters of the tribulation for a very good reason because we are up in heaven with him. The church age at number 7 is, what's 7 the number of? Perfection, completion, right? So the church age is complete. It's over. And when God says to Jesus, it's time, son, for you to go get your bride, the church, Jesus is going to come back for his church, and we will live with him in heaven forever. So let's dig into the message today, and let's, uh, let's look at it from who, what, where, why, and when. Oh, hang on a second. I thought that was out of place. Looking at my notes, and I don't know how that happened. The enemy's messing with me already. Either it was the enemy or someone here. Which, if it was someone here, I deserved it. Listen, the fact of the matter is that the rapture could happen today before we finish this message, before we have hot dogs and hamburgers at the Geeting's house later on. I, I hope that's not the case, but it could. It could. By the way, I hope all of you can join us later on for that cookout at the Geetings residence. But to be honest with you, no one knows the day or the hour, do we? It could happen today. It could happen 10 years from now. We just don't know. However, we are called to know the signs of the second coming, right? And so we see those signs increasing with intensity and with frequency, and that's why we say that the end is coming near. But it's more than just that. There's a convergence of other prophecies happening as well. In Jeremiah 49 and in Isaiah 17, it speaks of the destruction of Damascus. That is a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Some believe it has been, but it has not been. Damascus right now, Damascus, Syria, has been under attack. It, this, this country has been in up, an upheaval. It's been decimated by war. And just like its sister city, Aleppo, which has pretty much been destroyed, Damascus is in danger of being destroyed by all of this fighting. So that is a prophecy that is on the horizon that is very close to being fulfilled. The Ezekiel 38 war, World War III, could break out at any time. All the main players are set for this war to take place. Russia, Iran, Turkey are now they're together. They're allies of one another. So this war could break out at any time, and the hook that draws them in could very well be the natural gas, the largest natural gas reserve found in the region which was located in Israel. So that gives them the reason now, the motive to come into Israel and try to take Israel. So because we see these things increasing with intensity and frequency, and because we see the convergence of all these other prophecies, 
we say the second coming is close. And if his second coming is close, how close is the rapture of the church? But here's the real key. Not worrying about the rapture. When it's going to happen, if you're going to go, the real key is for any one of us, death could happen at any moment, right? So at any moment, we could experience death and see Jesus before we're raptured off of this earth. I remember Chuck Smith saying that he believed he was going to be raptured, that he was going to be raptured before he died. And, of course, that didn't happen. Chuck Smith died long before the rapture happened, or long before the rapture will happen. We have to be prepared to meet him, whether that's through our death or whether that's in the air. We have to be prepared to meet him. Don't let your meeting Jesus Christ take you like a thief in the night. Don't be surprised by it. Be prepared. And that is really the impetus behind these messages behind prophecy is to prepare us, to get us ready for what's going to happen. And so, like I said, those who still doubt that we're the final generation, there is no church number eight. So let's look at the rapture, continue to go along the lines of the who, what, where, when, why, and how, or the five W's and an H. You may have heard it explained as. And so our first question this morning is really number five as we carry over from last week. And hopefully my math is a little better today. So we're given a clue of who is raptured. And that's the question we're going to ask this first question this morning. Who is going to be raptured? And we find that clue or the answer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. And this is really the, the meat and potatoes of the rapture, isn't it? Right here in 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Think about what Paul just said. We're going to meet Jesus in the air. He can't be talking about the second coming, because the second coming, every knee will bow. Everyone, every eye will see. Everyone will see him. He's only speaking to believers. We're the ones who are going to meet him in the air. And Paul tells us right here in this passage of scripture who is going to be raptured those who are going to be raptured are in christ that's the key those who are in christ to be in christ means to accept his sacrifice for the payment for our sin amen once we do that that changes our position before we came to christ we were set apart from god we were at enmity with him at war with him by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we became identified with Christ. And having become identified with him, we left behind our old sinful nature and became a new creation. Therefore, if anyone who is in Christ, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So to be in Christ is to be more like him to be covered by his righteousness, and to be a new creation. that describe anybody in this room this morning? When we are in Christ, 
God no longer sees us as sinners, but sees us of the righteous, sees us as the righteousness of Christ. Right? Amen. We're no longer set apart from Him when we are in Christ. We are set apart from the world. We are set apart for Him now, once we are in Christ. We've been justified, forgiven, sanctified, made right, adopted, and made perfect in Him. So that is who is going to be raptured, those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are children of God. Paul wrote to the Galatians, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verses 36 through 37. 27 rather. 26 through 27. There goes the math again. <clears throat> so how do we become his children? Now there's an old saying, you know, people will, are famous for saying, if God is such a loving God, he would never send his children to hell. Have you ever heard that, right? If God was so loving, he would never send his children to hell. The mistake they make is not asking, well, who are God's children? We're all God's creation. But there's a criteria for being one of his children, and that's in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as has received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now think about that for a moment. We're children of God, Right? In your mind, as parents or grandparents, in your mind, now I'm not talking biblically, I'm, not talk, I'm talking about in your mind, where in your mind is the safest place for your child to be? In your arms, or at home with you, right? That's the safest place. Well, God the Father looks at his children the same way. The safest place for us to be when the tribulation begins is at home, in our home in heaven, with him. And then thirdly, the ambassadors are going to be raptured. We therefore are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Anyone who is in Christ, anyone who is a child of God, is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And before any war is waged on a foreign soil, who are the first people that that country pulls out? They're ambassadors. So... The earth, for us, is a foreign soil. We are citizens of heaven. That is our home. That's our, citizen. That's our citizenry. That's our country. And so before God wages war or brings wrath upon this earth, he is going to take his ambassadors. He's going to take his children home. Amen? Amen. So please note, every believer, any believers here this morning? Every believer is, a, is in him, is in Christ, is a child of God, and is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So we have all the bases covered. But I want you to also note what Jesus said in his letters to the seven churches and what Jesus said to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, Matthew 24, 13. But hold fast to what you have till I come, Revelation 2, 25. Be faithful until death. Revelation 2.10. And then Jesus says, He who overcomes. Revelation 2.7.11.17.26. Revelation 3.5.12 and 21. So there's a but here. Right? Meaning that there's something we're responsible for. Something we 
to be held accountable for. And that's that we persevere to the end, that we hold on, that we stay faithful to the Lord until the very end of all of this, whenever that is. And that means no matter what, no matter what we stay faithful, no matter what we hold on, no matter what we persevere. So no matter how hard this life gets, we are to stay faithful to the Lord until the very end and we will be saved. We are to be overcomers, meaning to overcome temptations and the trials of this life to endure to the very end. So there's something that we're responsible for here, to be faithful, to not walk away from our faith, to not to just hang on to the very end. No matter how hard or tough that gets, we're called to persevere. Amen? So let's look at the timing of the rapture. We talked about this a little bit last week. Let's look at the timing of it. And as I mentioned last week, and many of you already know, there are three main views of when the rapture will take place. As I look around this morning, I see the blanket, and it is the, it is the air conditioner wars. So just glad you're prepared. Be, listen, be prepared, right? That's the message this morning. Be prepared. Now, I could spend three Sundays going over each of these views, the pros and the cons, but we're just going to look at these briefly this morning. And then we're going to start with the least likely of the three, and that's post-trib. Post-trib means that whoever believes in there's a post-trib means that Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation and then takes his saints out. Okay, let that sink in for a minute. You guys excited about going through the tribulation? Well, just, just to put your minds at ease, they believe that God saves us through the tribulation. Through it. That's the main word. God saves us through it. Is that what, is that what Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 says? No, that's not what it says at all. It says he saves us from the tribulation. They don't believe that God will take his bride out of the tribulation, but rather will save his bride through the tribulation. And there's a lot of problems with this view, but I'm just going to give you two of them. First of all, we know that Jesus returns with his saints, right, at the end, to rule and reign on this earth. So that means that Jesus comes, we get raptured, spin around, and come right back. That's not the rapture. That's the second coming. Besides, you get dizzy doing that. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It's the second coming they're talking about, not the rapture. Second, there are going to be people on this earth during the tribulation who will come to Christ during the tribulation. Sadly, they, they don't get raptured for whatever reason. Their doubt, their lack of faith, but they will come to faith during the tribulation. The Bible tells us what happens to them. They're killed. The majority of them are killed for their faith. And so, let me ask you, does this sound like the Lord to you, that he would save one group of believers through the tribulation, but let the other group be killed? Doesn't sound like him at all to me, right? So, we can cancel out, just based on that. And, and listen, by the way, I encourage you, if you want to know more about these three views, be a Berean. Study up on them, dig into them, go more in depth into them, and see if these views, why they fit or don't fit the biblical narrative. It's a little homework for you. The second view carries a little bit more weight, and that's called the pre-trib or pre-wrath. They believe in a pre-wrath, meaning that we're raptured out of here in the second half of the tribulation before 
or as the Antichrist enters into the temple to desecrate it. We're zapped out of here then. And the way they explain this is that the first three and a half years isn't so bad. It's man's wrath, not God's wrath. Really? That's an interesting position. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is not a picnic. That's when the two witnesses appear in Jerusalem, right? God says this about them, and I will give them power. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So for the first, by the way, I'm going to do a little biblical math again. 1,260 days is three and a half years. So the first three and a half years, the two witnesses are on this earth in Jerusalem, and this is what they're doing. They have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have the power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. Who brought the two witnesses to this earth? Who gave them their power? Does that sound like man's wrath to you? No. They continue to bring plagues upon the earth, to shut up the, earth, to shut up the rain on the earth, which means you have famine and drought until the Antichrist kills them. To further weaken their view of this, just go to Revelation chapter 6. And if you're in Revelation 4 now, just flip over to two chapters and look at verse chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now I, John, saw the Lamb, opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. What's that first line say? I saw who? The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. Man's wrath or God's wrath? The tribulation begins in chapter 6, verse 1. That's God's wrath. We are not here for God's wrath. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross for us. We are not going to experience the wrath of God again. Amen? Believers, let me rephrase that. Believers are not going to experience the wrath of God again. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world, and the church will be taken out of harm's way. And I hope that by now you've got that picture in your head. And so that brings us to the only conclusion, which is pre-trib, which means we're raptured before the tribulation begins, before chapter 6, verse 1. That's the, the view that I hold, by the way, and all of my esteemed colleagues, and I've always wanted to say that in a sentence. So... Because of the reasons we've already stated, and if you weren't here last week, you could certainly look at that message or listen to that message, but mainly because of what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 10. I will save you from, from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where Jesus says to John, come up here and I will show you these things. Not stay down there on earth, John, where he was, but come up here. Come on up here with me. He's telling John, he's telling the church that we will be up there with him when the tribulation begins. But to be fair, there is a group who will be saved through the tribulation, but it's not the church. You have to remember, 
Don't get confused. The tribulation is what? For the salvation of the Jewish nation. So just as we have pictures of the rapture in Enoch and and Elijah, we have pictures of Paul kind of being raptured up to heaven alive, right? And he sees heaven, and it's so incredible, he can't even describe it with words. Jesus, of course, comes down from heaven and then is taken up to heaven alive in front of everyone. So we have pictures of that. We even have a picture in Lot, righteous Lot, right? Who the angel said to him, I cannot bring the judgment of God upon these cities until you're what? Out of town, safely out of harm's way. And that is a picture of us, for us, of the rapture. So we also have pictures in the Bible of the Jewish nation being saved through the tribulation. And one of those pictures is Noah. Noah is a picture of the Jewish nation being saved through the tribulation. The ark is a picture of salvation for us. People can come to Christ still, right? People can come to Christ right now before the rapture occurs, even after the rapture occurs. But listen, if you're buying tickets, this is the best time to get them. Not after the rapture, not during the tribulation. So people can come to Christ until it is, until he comes again, until he's too late, right? You can come to Christ at any time. Hopefully, prayerfully, through these messages, you make that decision to come to him before the tribulation begins so that you will be raptured out of here. But the ark is a picture of salvation for us. As long as the door was open to the ark, there was chance for salvation. Once that door was closed, which is a picture of the rapture, then it became a lot more difficult, didn't it? Once that door was closed, meant you had to go through God's judgment now. And that's what we see, a picture of Noah and his family being saved through the judgment and a picture of God's judgment sweeping the evil from the world. The Jewish people who are left in the, is a picture of us. This is a picture of us as they will go through the tribulation but be saved through it. Now, Jesus on the Mount of Olives was speaking at this point to the Jewish nation. And he gives them a warning. He says, after you see the Antichrist defile the temple, that's when they're going to know that this is not the Messiah. This is not their Messiah. Their Messiah would never walk into the temple and desecrate it. They know now that they've been lied to, that they've been deceived. And so Jesus tells them, then is the time to flee. Come down off the housetops. Woe to you who are nursing, who are pregnant at this time. Pray that it's not during the winter months. Come down off the housetops and flee to the mountains right let those who are in judea flee to the mountains matthew 24 16 we believe that those mountains are the rock city of petra which is in modern day jordan you can visit there today we believe so strongly that this is where the jews will flee that christian organizations have placed cases of bibles in the rooms and cubby holes and everywhere they can get them in that rock city for the jewish people to read when they get there, and they're hanging out for those three and a half years. Another picture we have is Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're placed in the superheated, fiery furnace. God didn't save them from the furnace, did he? He saved them through the furnace. The furnace is a picture for us of the tribulation. Where was Daniel doing all that? These are his best friends. Daniel was nowhere to be found in that chapter, was he? Many scholars believe that particular incident was a picture of the rapture for us, that Daniel 
is a picture of the church being raptured, and his three friends are a picture of the Jewish nation being saved through the tribulation. So from this point in the book of Revelation, the church is in heaven with God. And now God is dealing with the Jewish nation who has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So how will the rapture happen? That's our next question. Paul tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. And for those who didn't sit through last week's message, that word caught up is key for us here. Because in the Latin Vulgate, that word is raphemer. That's where we get our word rapture. So if anyone ever tells you that the rapture is not in the Bible, it certainly is. It's right here in that word, caught up. And it means to be snatched, to be just plucked right off the earth. So one day, hopefully very soon, there will be a trumpet blast in heaven. And God the Father will look at his son. He said, son, it's time. Go get your bride. And when he does... The dead in Christ will rise first, meet Jesus in the air. Then those who are alive, who are still alive on this earth, will meet them in the air as well. So, whoever is dead in Christ, who, no matter how long you've been dead in Christ, you have the honor of being raised first, and then we who are alive will follow you. And there's a couple things evident from this passage of Scripture, and we just talked about it, but it's worth repeating. All those who are in Christ, remember that's key, are raptured. All those who identify with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be raptured. We are in Him. We are not of this world. So we are looking forward to being removed from this world before things get really bad here, right? Secondly, the whole church, whether you died 100 years ago in Christ or 400 years ago in Christ, the whole church will be raptured. There's another passage of scripture that gives us a little clue, a little glimpse of what the rapture is going to be like. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 52. So all who are in Christ will be raptured. Whether you were dead or alive at the time of the rapture, you will be raptured. No one is going to be left, no one who is in Christ, who is a believer, is going to be left behind. So all those who are raptured, who are taken up to heaven, will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. How fast is a twinkling of an eye? I just did it. Did you see it? You want to see me run from here to that back door? I just did. You want to do it again? Oh, okay. That's how fast a twinkling of an eye is. The best way to describe that is that we change from these old flesh and blood-driven bodies to a glorified spiritual body. Our souls are where? In heaven, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So one day, these bodies, these bodies who have gone long time now in the grave and their souls are in heaven with Christ, will meet that soul in heaven. And this is just me. Again, be a Berean. Can't be dogmatic about this. It's just my opinion. And bang, 
Body and soul unite, glorified body. There you go. Chew on that one. But here's, listen, we get a new spiritual body. Paul wrote, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And when, he's, when he speaks about being sown, he means being put in the earth, dying. We're raised into a spiritual, glorified body. I can't, I don't know about you, but I can't wait. All the aches and pains now are gone. No more limitations. Free to move about. Free to go through walls. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I'll be highly disappointed if that's not true. But here's something to look forward to. We all will receive our glorified bodies the moment we meet Jesus in the air. Isn't that something to really look forward to in all of the bad news that we see on the TV every single day these days? There's a door open in heaven. Don't ever forget that. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the door is open in heaven. That door that's open is the front door to our home. God has left the front door to our home in heaven open. And one day God is going to call us home to him where we will be with him forever. Amen? So, one other question. Well, actually two other questions. What happens when the light, capital L, goes out? I'm going to use an illustration, and I thought it was very fitting since we live in Pennsylvania. In Johnstown, Pennsylvania, there was a small lake. It's about 400 feet higher than the elevation of the town of Johnstown. The land where the lake sat had been purchased by a group who raised the height of the dam another 100 feet. After a day of heavy rain, and by some estimates, 6 to 10 inches of rain fell in a 24-hour period of time, the water of the lake raised even higher. And the only escape route for that water was over the dam, which was never designed to retain the weight of that much water to begin with. So within a short period of time, the dam collapsed, sending 16 million tons of water tearing down the valley toward Johnstown. At 4 p.m. on a very wet May 31, 1889 afternoon, the inhabitants heard a low roar that grew to a thunder. Churning with chunks of debris, the wall of flood water at times reached 60 feet in height. Rushed downhill toward Johnstown at 40 miles an hour, leaving a path of destruction in its wake. Thousands of people desperately tried to escape the wave. Those who were caught up in it were caught up in a torrent of oily, muddy water surrounded by tons of grinding debris. Some were crushed, and for others it became rafts to help sustain them through the flood. There were no telephones, only telegraphs. And there were telegraph stations stationed along different locations where people were being warned about the impending flood. A civil engineer who first saw the impending break in the dam rode his horse as fast as he could down the valley shouting, the dam is breaking, run for your life. 
At the South Fourth Station, he stopped to send a telegraph to Johnstown, which was about 10 miles away, warning them that the flood was coming. Some paid attention to his cry and were saved. Others ignored him. As a result, the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, population 30,000, was devastated by the worst flood in the nation's history. Over 2,200 people lost their lives that day, and many others were left homeless. That dam that had restrained that water for years let loose, and death and destruction ensued. One day, and that day may be fast approaching, the hand of the restrainer will be lifted from this world, and literally all hell will break loose. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Listen, people have been warned for years and years and years through messages like this, through YouTube and Facebook more recently, through TV, even movies have warned people that this was coming. Many people have taken the warning and will be saved, and many more will ignore it to their own de detriment. So we have to ask ourselves, who or what is the restrainer and what or who is being restrained? And we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer. Where is the Holy Spirit? Everywhere. But he's inside of us as well, isn't he? For years I believed that the who of what was being restrained was Satan and evil in the world. However, when you stop to think about that for a minute, when you really stop to think about that, does it really seem to you right now today that the enemy and evil is being restrained? Listen, this was eye-opening for me because it answered a lot of questions for me. Because if we believe that it's Satan and evil being restrained, evil's out in the open. Just showing its ugly face everywhere. It's almost like evil saying, nah, 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 you can't get me. Right? So that means that God is not powerful enough to restrain evil. We know that's not true because we read the last chapter of the book, right? But it also causes us to ask God, why? Why aren't you putting an end to this? Why aren't you stopping this from happening? So if it's not Satan and evil that's being restrained, what is? Think about the account in Genesis 18, where the pre-incarnate Christ appears with Abraham, right? And he has a discussion with Abraham. And Abraham starts to bargain with him. Christ, Jesus tells him that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. And Abraham starts to bargain with him. He says, Lord, if there's 50 righteous in those cities, would you destroy it? And he said, no, I will not destroy it for 50. Abraham bargains him right down to 10, right? If there's 10 righteous in the city, will you destroy it? And the Lord says, no, if there are 10 righteous, I will not destroy it. Obviously, there were less than 10 righteous in the city, and those cities were destroyed. But Abraham said to the Lord, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Genesis 18, verse 25. Abraham was pleading for the Lord to restrain the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we just finished the book of Job, right? 
And we saw in the account of the book of Job that Satan was not restrained from attacking Job, was he? All God said to him was, don't kill him. But Job was more afraid of God's judgment than he was of what Satan could do to him. Listen to what Job said. Be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Job 19.29 So what's being restrained right now is the judgment of God against this Christ-rejecting world. That's what's being restrained. We see that with Noah. God would not bring judgment upon this earth until Noah, righteous Noah and his family, were safely aboard that ark out of harm's way. We see it with Lot. When the angel tells Lot and his family, God cannot bring judgment against this place until you and your family are safely out of the way. And right now, the only thing restraining the hand of God's judgment upon this world are you and I, God's children upon this earth who are living on this earth. God will not bring judgment upon this earth until his spirit-filled sons and daughters are removed out of harm's way. And once we're removed in the rapture, there will be no one left to keep God's restraining hand from bringing his judgment upon this world. So what is our responsibility until that happens? Jesus said to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. We are the salt. We are to be the salt. What does salt do? It flavors, but it also preserves. It slows down the process of decay, right? We are the light. Light, of course, dispels darkness. So the only reason that this world hasn't completely and totally collapsed into darkness is because of Holy Spirit-filled Christians who are on this earth. Think about what's going to happen when Spirit-filled members of the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of government in the United States are raptured out of here. Think of what's going to happen when spirit-filled leaders across the world, believers, and there are some, are raptured out of here. Whatever they stood for, whatever stood stand they took for morality, for justice, will be gone. Gone. Think about all the spirit-filled believers who are praying against the evil in this world today. Praying that those in the world would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So in a way, evil and Satan are being restrained to some extent by our prayers and our desires to do what's socially, morally, and biblically correct. But what happens when that's removed? What happens when that influence is taken out of this world? What happens is evil will finally have its way. It will be unencumbered by the prayers and the actions of the righteous. And the dam will burst, and all hell will literally break loose on this earth. With God's children out of harm's way, the judgment of God will be unleashed against this world, against Satan, and against evil. God's judgment is going to come like a flood upon this world. And, and even though this world has been warned, there will be many who will not heed that warning, and many will perish because of their lack of heeding that warning. 
It will come like a destruction the likes of mankind has never seen before. And so we ask ourselves, right, the who, what, where, why, and when and how of the rapture so we understand better what's coming and what hope that we have in all of this. But the one question that is rarely asked is why. Why are we raptured out of here? Why would God take his children out of here? There's two possible answers to that question. First is found in the biblical feasts of Israel. And we're going to focus mainly on the Feast of Trumpets, but there's seven of them. There's seven biblical feasts, four in the, in the um, spring and three in the fall. The four in the spring have already been fulfilled. There are Passover. That was fulfilled with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was fulfilled with the burial, the death and burial of Christ, and our sins being forgiven and washed away. The Feast of First Fruits was fulfilled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Feast of Pentecost was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. Now that leaves three fall feasts which have yet to be fulfilled. The first of those is the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah. I used to always think it was Rosh Hashanah. Many believe, sorry, sorry to all my Jewish friends. Many believe the rapture will occur on the Feast of Trumpets. And I'm going to explain to you why in a minute. The second one is the Feast of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur. And that will represent the judgment of God upon this earth. And third is the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And that is when Jesus comes to dwell on this earth to rule and reign. So those three fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled. And that's why some believe that this is the answer to why that it's a fulfillment of one of the biblical feasts. The Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, will occur this year on Sunday, September 29th, and will end two days later at sunset on Tuesday, October 1st. So if you have to make a dentist appointment or anything like that, make it after October 1st. Just kidding. Some of you picked up on that, some of you went right over your head. This is the start of the Jewish New Year. It falls in the month of Tishri in the Jew, on the Jewish calendar. It is a feast that is called by the rabbis, no one knows the day or the hour. That's what they call this feast. The reason is interesting behind that, because Jesus said to what? To his disciples on the Mount of Olives. No one knows the day or the hour. Only, not even the angels, only my Father in heaven, right? So was Jesus speaking of the rapture? When he said this, was he? we know he was speaking of the rapture when he said this, but was Jesus referring to the Feast of Trumpets, as some believe that he was? All Jewish holidays fall on the full moon of the month except one. Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, is the beginning of the new year. And that holiday occurs on the first of the month during the month of Tishrei. Before science understood the cycles of the planets in the solar system, the Jews knew that they had a two-day window for the sighting of the new moon. The new year could not officially begin began until two witnesses reported to the high priest that they had seen the sliver of the new moon. Once the two witnesses sighted the sliver of the two moon, the new moon rather, the priest would sound the shofar, the, the trumpet, and declare the start of Rosh Hashanah, declare the start of the new year. That's why it's called the Feast of Trumpets. 
But until those two witnesses came forth, the response from the priest of those who asked them when the feast begins was this. No one knows the day or the hour. So the rapture could be a fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. And if that is in fact what Jesus was referring to when he said that, now his, obviously his disciples would have understood that, you can kind of get an idea of when, can't you? You may not be able to declare the day or the hour exactly, but you can get pretty close, right? So, I don't know personally that that is the case, but I throw it out there for you. And again, if you have to make a dentist appointment, make it after October 1st. But there's another Jewish custom that I believe that Jesus was referring to that day on the Mount of Olives, and that is called a Galilean wedding. We cannot look past the fact that Jesus was a Galilean. So were every one of his disciples. And I believe that's what Jesus was referring to that day on the Mount of Olives, because once Jesus said those words, no one knows that they are the hour, his disciples would have immediately recognized that as part of their Jewish wedding custom. And so the Galilean wedding is a perfect picture. The whole thing is a perfect picture for us of the rapture of the church. In the custom of the Galilean wedding, the father of the bride would choose the groom. So for those of you who are not married, how would you like your dad to choose your husband? Listen to John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. The groom would then come to the home of the bride. Jesus came to this earth over 2,000 years ago, right? To the home of his bride, the church. The groom and the father of the bride would get together and agree on a bride price, or a mohar in Hebrew. And that price was the price which the groom was willing to pay for the bride. So yes, guys, you would have had to pay for your wife. Let that sink in for a minute. The bride price that Jesus agreed to pay for his bride would cost him his life. As he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, and here's the key, which is given for you, my bride. That's the price that Jesus was willing to pay. That's the mohar that Jesus is paying for his bride, the church. They would then enter into a contract, which is a written agreement called a ketubah. And the ketubah was nothing more than the groom saying what he would do for his bride and how he would provide for her. And he would list all of the things that he would do in the marriage, all of the things, how he would provide for her. And that was written down and agreed upon. So Jesus entered into a covenant with us, didn't he? A ketubah of sorts. At the Last Supper, listen to what he said. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. So the provision that Jesus provides for his bride, the church, in the ketubah, is the forgiveness of our sins. That's how he provides for us. Now the ketubah was signed, it was agreed upon, but it wasn't ratified yet, if you will. 
That only happened when the groom offered the bride a cup of wine. It was called the cup of acceptance, and it signified the groom's willingness to pay the price for the bride, but it also signified the bride's willingness to enter into the marriage according to the terms of the covenant contract. This cup of acceptance was offered, and he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave them to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. The contract did not become a done deal until the bride drank from the cup of acceptance. At this point, the bride could refuse to drink from the cup of acceptance, and the marriage was null and void. It was done. There was no marriage. We have a choice to make, don't we? We can accept Jesus or not accept Jesus. We can drink from that cup of acceptance or not. It's our choice. But once we do, we become his bride. We are betrothed. Once the ketubah was agreed upon and the contract of the covenant was sealed by the bride drinking from the cup of acceptance, they were considered betrothed to one another just as we become the bride of Christ upon accepting his gift of salvation for each one of us. Now there was a second cup of wine. And that second cup of wine was saved until the actual wedding feast, which you're going to discover here, did not occur right away. Jesus said on that night in the upper room, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it with you, new in my Father's kingdom. That's the second cup of wine that Jesus will drink with his bride, the church, in his Father's kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So after all the formalities were done, the groom would leave, and he would return to his father's house and begin to build an addition on his father's house. That's where he and his bride would live. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, my bride. I threw that one in there. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. This is a picture of the rapture of the church. Jesus left his home in heaven to come to the home of his bride, the earth, and he has returned. After he paid the price, he returned to his father's home and is now preparing a place for you and I. While the groom and the bride were away, the groom would build his room, right? Add those places on. And he would also gather all that was needed for the wedding feast. The bride, for her part, would go and gather all the pieces needed for her wedding gown. That could take a long time because she had to wait for certain traders to come in and out of town to be able to get all she needed to put her gown together. And her main responsibility was to remain pure until her groom returned. And that's what the thought of the rapture should do for all of us. It should have a purifying effect on us. John wrote, and everyone who has hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. So, sometimes up to a year or more later, you get that? They're patrolled, groom, bride, over a year later. They're not together. They're not in the same home. They're not in the same bed. They're separate. He's at his father's house. She's doing what she has to do. They're separate for a year. Think about when you first got married, or who, those of you who were married in this room. 
How would you have felt if your groom or your bride disappeared for over a year after the wedding nuptials? Hmm. Hmm. Be a lot of first year divorces, I can tell you that. Here's where it gets interesting. He's gone for over a year. At some point, only the father of the groom knows when things are just right, when the groom has done all he needs to do, and he says to his son, the time is right, go get your bride. Do you think there's an anticipation through this whole time of the groom wanting to go get his bride, anticipating, can't wait to go get his bride? That's Jesus in heaven right now waiting in anticipation for his bride, the church, wanting to come and get us. And we should be longing and wanting and desiring to be with him in heaven. Amen? So once his father said that, he would gather up the wedding party, and with torches they would come in the middle of the night. Most of the time, the majority of the time, would be in the middle of the night. So one night you might go to sleep and wake up and look at Jesus' face. How nice would that be? Be like, man, I hope that wasn't the pizza I ate last night. <laughs> they would go in a torchlit ceremony. The bride would be waiting. They'd, she'd hear the trumpet sound. She'd be waiting for her groom. And here's a really cool part. And if you want to see this live and in action, get a movie called Before the Wrath. And it's going to cost you a little money on, I think it's Prime. It's well worth the $20 that it'll cost you to watch it. It's a great family movie, and it'll describe this. You'll see it illustrated right before your very eyes. But they brought this, I don't know how to explain it, um, kind of like a seat, but it had handles on it that extended out. And they would lower it down. The bride would step into it. They'd lift it up a little bit, and she would sit down, and her feet would literally come up off the ground, and they would carry her away to the groom's father's home. Is that not a picture of the rapture? How the bride of Christ is lifted up and carried away to his father's home. There's going to come a time, we pray, we hope very soon, when God says to his son, son, it's time to go get your bride. Are you ready? And if you are not ready, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if he's not coming for you, and you want that with all of your heart, then it's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. That's the first step, to admit that we have sinned. Because the Bible tells us that. There are none righteous, no, not one. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So admit first that you're a sinner. And then B, believe with all your heart that Jesus died for you and that God rose him from the dead. Believe that he's coming back for you. Believe in all with all of your heart. Romans 10, 11, 10, 10 and 11 say, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Believe on him. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the Savior. Repent from your sin and turn to him. And once that you admit to your sinner, and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin, you repented from that sin, then see, call upon the name of the Lord. Confess that you can't do this on your own. Confess that there's no amount of works, righteous works, that you could possibly do that would bring you into the arms of Jesus Christ 
in heaven. There's nothing we can do. Jesus did it all on the cross. Jesus said it is finished. And what was finished was all the sin of mankind was put to death on that cross with him. And the only way to heaven, he said, is through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to heaven except through him. So if you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no magic words to this. If we were going to put this into a prayer, there is no magic words to this. It's what you believe in your heart and with all of your heart. If this is your heart's desire to be with Jesus Christ, to submit to him as Lord and Savior, to be with him forever in heaven, if that's your heart's desire, then let's put this into a prayer. But it, like I said a thousand times, it's not the words in the prayer, it's the desire of your heart. If you mean this with all of your heart, then as the scripture tells us, you will be saved. So let's pray. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner. I admit that to you. I pray, Lord Jesus, for your forgiveness. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me for my sin. Help me to repent and turn from it. Lord, I will walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord, for dying for my sin. Thank you, Lord, for welcoming me into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. And so, Lord, I submit myself to you now. Ask that you be my Lord and Savior. And, Lord, I look forward to your return. I ask this, I pray it in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And if you prayed that this morning, welcome to the family of God. And as I always say, I'll either see you soon or see you in the air. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. It's very fitting this morning that this message just happened to fall on the day when we have communion. After communion, we always have an agape feast. Today, of course, that is going to be at the home of Kurt and Nancy. And um, so we're just going to have agape there, turn it into a kind of a July 4th slash 5th weekend. But I ask you now, while the worship team is going to play softly in the background, if, if there's anything in your heart, anything at all, that would keep you from partaking in communion with us this morning, if there's any unforgiveness or any, anything at all in your heart, give it to the Lord now. Just take a few minutes, bow your heads, lay it all at the altar so that you can partake with us this morning.
is right with the Lord, I'm going to ask you to come up now and take the communion elements. This side, this side here for the communion, that side in the middle, you're free for all. Take the elements back to your seat with you and we'll partake, hey, just hang on to them, we'll partake together. those of you who are at home joining us have uh, some communion elements in front of you whatever that may be and you can partake with us so on the night he was betrayed he took bread Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and said to his disciples take eat this is my body this was the price the bride price that Jesus was willing to pay for his bride the church you and I He's willing to pay with his life, to give his body as a sacrifice for us. You know, in the Middle Eastern culture, they'd all sit around the table together, and we see that picture in the Last Supper, don't we? It was in that room when we were in Israel. It's an, it's an amazing room, the upper room, or at least what they think was the upper room. And there was a table, very low, wasn't a high table at all. It sat in, probably in a U-shape. And the disciples and Jesus would lounge or lean on pillows all around that table and eat. It was a time of fellowship. It was, it was just a great intimate time of fellowship, breaking off pieces of bread and, and eating it together. And, and they would have taken one piece of bread and broke it off and passed it from person to person to person. Even to this day they do this. And the symbolism is, is that the same bread that's in me is now in you. The same Jesus that is in me is in each of us this morning. It was a common meal. We get, our, we get the word communion from that word, that common meal, communion. It was done together, very personal, very intimate. It symbolized the fact that whatever's in me is now in you. And so as we partake this morning of the bread, let's remember and always remember this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Let's always remember that this was the price that Jesus was willing to pay for us. Nothing was too dear for him, not even his own life. He willingly, lovingly offered himself up so that we 
would have the blessing of being with him in heaven for all eternity. So let's partake. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sin. And here, so that's the first part. That's the cup of acceptance. As we drink from that this morning, we're remembering that we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we've submitted to him, that we are now his bride and he is our groom and we are betrothed, that we are to keep ourselves pure until his return. But then there's a second part. For this is, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's that second cup. That's a promise that Jesus has made to his bride, that he's coming back for us, that he's preparing that place, and once that place is ready, he's coming back for us so that where he is, we will also be, and he will then have that second cup with us in heaven. How amazing is that? What a perfect ending to the story of the rapture, the Galilean wedding, the perfect picture of the rapture for us. It's our wedding day. It's when we go to heaven. It's when we enjoy the feast with our Lord and Savior. It's something for all, all to look forward to. And so every time we do this, I hope that it's a remembrance for us of what's to come. It's our hope, our blessed hope. So let's partake and remember the sacrifice, the shedding of the blood, Lord's blood for the forgiveness of our sins.